Let me invite you to take your Bibles and join us again in the book of Isaiah, chapter 49. Isaiah chapter 49. We'll be in Isaiah this Sunday and three more. The perhaps more famous, maybe even most famous sections of Isaiah will be covered in the next three Sundays. I would suspect that many of us are unaware of the 49th chapter. We will perhaps have a quiz after this is over to see. The 49th chapter of Isaiah in a moment. I've said many times, when I was a boy, our home church, the church that Susan and I call home, had a thriving Royal Ambassador program, and that program embraced camping as a methodology for teaching the truths of God. And as a result, I and my brothers and a bunch of our buddies were introduced to many skills that have served me well throughout my life. For instance, in that program, I learned how to sharpen a knife. I learned how to tie a knot. I learned how to cook over a fire and stay skinny. But I will tell you that in order to cook over a fire, you first have to build a fire. There is a novice method for building a fire. It's called pile up a bunch of sticks, pour gas on it, and light it. That's the novice method. Because that won't work for long, the gas burns fast and flashy, but the goal is a fire that doesn't go out. Instead, you have to build a fire correctly. You have to give it more than gasoline for fuel, and in a few minutes, you can have a fire that you can cook anything you want. So you can start flashy and end up with a pile of sticks, or you can build a solid fire and you can have dinner for a crowd. Similarly, there is an old adage that seems disconnected but makes sense in my mind. There's an old saying, give a man a fish and feed him for a day, but teach a man to fish and you'll feed him for a lifetime. Hope is very much like that. Circumstances come and go in our lives, and our hope is immediately buoyed by the change of situation. But if that change of situation is not substantial, it's not built to last, then our hope, the resulting flash, if you will, of enthusiasm or confidence or joy is also short-lived or maybe even not even obtained at all. As we have seen, the book of Isaiah is a book about the judgment of God, the first half of the book, 39 chapters roughly, about the judgment of God. But beginning in chapter 40, as we have seen, the last 27 chapters, it's a book about hope. It's a book about the hope that God intends for his people after they have suffered, in this case, after they have suffered judgment. Specifically, God intends that hope would come in the form of his servant. We were introduced to the servant of God in chapter 42. In uh, these last 27 chapters, beginning in chapter 40 through verse, chapter 46, rather 66, I'll get that right, 
40 to 66, the last 27 chapters here, there are four long sections about this unnamed servant. And this is the second of those four sections. Yes, we will consider the other two later. But these sections foreshadow a coming servant. And the purpose of this foreshadowing is to give us hope, to remind us that the sorrow we're in or the hardship we're in or in the case of Israel the judgment they were in is not forever that God actually is doing something that has a plan that his plan is perfect and that his plan includes something that is even greater a a greater good than than you have ever imagined I want you to think with me for a moment if you're one of these persons that interprets the Bible as, as, as everything to do with literal Israel, that there is a, a piece of dirt to the east of the Mediterranean Sea that's roughly 125 miles long and about 75 miles wide. And everything that God is doing is interpreted through the lens of what is good for that piece of dirt and that your goal is to get back to that dirt get back to that piece of land, and that God's going to build some sort of eternal kingdom based on that piece of dirt. If that's your understanding of the Bible, and and believe you me, there are plenty of people who understand the Bible that way. I'm going to tell you that's very short-sighted. That doesn't get the point at all of the Bible. That's misguided completely. I'm not suggesting Israel is not a part of God's eternal Israel. That's quite clear as we shall see in a moment but to suggest that somehow it's all about that piece of dirt is in fact very very short-sighted i think is downright incorrect but what is true is that if if you if your eyes are can only see a horizon that's this low so to speak then then the purpose of the book of isaiah is in part to lift your eyes to help you to see a farther horizon to to recognize that God has more in store for you than you have ever imagined. Let me say it differently. I have better news for you than you thought possible. Because in the midst of your sorrow, in the midst of your struggles, in the midst of your hardship, God has a plan, and he's working his plan. We see that by his promise here in Isaiah 49 of a coming servant. You'll remember that Israel is in exile. They are slaves for 70 years in Babylon by this time. And the purpose of the book of Isaiah is to say, God knows your sorrow, and he knows your difficulty, and he knows your hardship. And he's going to send his servant, his servant. We've seen an earthly servant, so to speak, in the person of King Cyrus, the king of Persia. He's already been named in the book of Isaiah. Hundred, hundred, more than a hundred years before Cyrus was king, God predicted through Isaiah that Cyrus would be the king and that Cyrus would be the king that would deliver Israel back to the promised land. We knew that. We know that. And yet, God intends more. So we see here a reference to his coming servant, not just Cyrus, but one who's even greater, one who's going to do more who's got more power, if you will, more resources. He's got more blessings available to you than even Cyrus 
So if all you want to do is get home, let me remind you, God has more in store for you than just getting back to your historical dirt. We're going to read now Isaiah 49. We're just going to read 13 verses. And uh, we we could read a lot, but uh, we'll stop there in the interest of time. Listen to me, verse 1 says, O coastlands, give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He, He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob, to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Thus says the Lord, in a time of favor I have answered you, in a day of salvation I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages, saying to the prisoners, come out to those who are in darkness, appear. They shall feed along the ways. On all bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them by springs of water will guide them. And I will make all my mountains a road and my highways shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar, and behold, these from the north and from the west, these from the land of Syene. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. We're introduced in this chapter a second time to a man that he refers to, verse 3, as his servant. His servant. God is going to send his servant. I just want to make two points, if you will. I think you can divide this section of Scripture evenly into two sections. So let's uh, consider them, and I'll try to make application for these circumstances. First of all, I would simply say that God has an old strategy for his servant And it includes us. I want you to note here, verse 1, the Lord called me from the womb and from the body of my mother, he named my name. He called me from the womb and named me from birth. Now, we are not surprised in our congregation because we talk like this all the time. We're not surprised when we say that God, to quote Psalm 139, forms me in my mother's womb, that he shapes my innermost parts in my mother's womb. We are familiar that that is not 
inconsistent language in the Bible, that in fact, God does deal with us from the beginning, even before the beginning. But here he explicitly indicates that in fact, God is at work, that God has an old strategy. It is an old strategy to me. I am old enough to remember a lot of things. There's been a lot of water under the bridge in my life, and yet I don't remember being born. I've only met one person in my life who claims that she remembers being born. I think she's just old. So if you remember being born, talk to me. I'd love to have a second notch on my, uh, my meter, if you will, keeping track of people who can remember being born. But the reality is you were born. You're here. You were born. And you may not remember being born, and you don't. No matter what you say, you don't. But God does. In other words, God is not a stranger to you. God is not a stranger to your circumstance. He's not a stranger to your life. He's not a stranger to the value of your life, to the importance of your life, to the dignity of your life. We, we make judgments of people all the time. We shouldn't, but we do. We judge people who are nice, and we say, that's a good man. We judge people who are not nice, and we say, that's a bad man. We judge people who are tall and assume they play basketball. Et cetera, et cetera. We judge people all the time. We make judgments about the way they look or the way they talk or the way they act or whatever, and we do this all the time. Perhaps some of that's appropriate. Perhaps some of that's very inappropriate. But the point is, we have a tendency to put value on people according to whatever criteria we think should be placed upon them. I want to remind you that God has placed a criteria on you, that he knows you, that he loves you. And the fact that you're tall or not tall or wide or not wide, the fact that you're male or not male, female, not female, those things are very important to God because he fashioned you. He's at work in you. And the servant testifies that, in fact, God has a strategy he has a strategy for the servant, and he has a strategy for me. He has a strategy for you. He actually has purpose for your life that you don't understand. And we ought to be comforted by that. We ought to be aware of that. And God has a strategy for others who are not a part of what he is doing. He, he goes on down to verse uh, 6. Is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob, to bring back the preserved of Israel. I'll make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. I want to come back to that. But he, he's, he's going to say or says it here that the servant has a specific purpose. Now, maybe the specificity of your purpose or my purpose is, is certainly different than that. But it is nonetheless God's plan for our lives. God has a particular plan for our lives. I've often remarked, can you imagine how difficult it must be to choreograph the affairs of seven plus billion people on the earth? Susan and I have three girls, now three sons-in-law, and nine grandchildren. 
and we are exhausted choreographing all the details of keeping up with who's on first and where's this and all that. Susan's very birthday conscious and anniversary conscious and all that stuff, and that's really good. That just exhausts me. It's just too many, too many dates. So I just look at her, who's next? Here's the credit card. Go take care of it. That's the way it's got to be. I just, just too much. I can't even control my little piece of the action. And I don't want to. So I pretty much punted, giving it to her. She likes it. She thrives in that. But she, even she can be exhausted. I want to remind you, God's taking care of every little thing. And the fact that I'm here and not, let's just say, in Central Asia impacts the world. Impacts a very small piece of the world, but it impacts the world. The fact that I'm here and not in India with Jolly Ramai, where there's this great COVID outbreak, it, it impacts India, a portion of India, a man in India. The fact that I'm here and not there, it impacts me and my family. So you see how all this sort of dovetails together? And none of us can control any of that. None of us have any jurisdiction or sovereignty over any of that. And yet God does. God is at work in your situation, as small and minuscule as you may think your situation is, God is at work. Here in this situation, he says, I'm going to send my servant. And my servant is going to be of such a person, such a, a, a being, that the Lord, who knows him from the beginning, is going to use him in such a way to bring Israel back to God. And beyond that, he's going to extend the reach of God to the nations. God is going to do something with his servant and through his servant in you, in me, in us. That through this servant, God is going to send a light for the nations. How would I know of the glory of God, or the wonder of God, or the kindness of God, or the favor of God, or the mercy of God, if someone had not told me? And how would the person told me have ever known if someone had not told them? And we could work it on back and ultimately become eventually to this very chapter, this servant. Let me show you an illustration of this in the New Testament. In the book of Acts chapter 13, you'll recall that Paul and Barnabas are featured in Acts 13 and they are interested in being missionary to the peoples outside of Israel. And as they do, people are being converted. And as, as a result, they are uh, examined by uh, others, and they are they're giving a report to the church at Antioch. So here's their, their report at, at Antioch. Verse 44 would be a good place to start, Acts 13. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city of Antioch, which is not in Israel, by the way, gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy, and they began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, saying, or reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles." For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, and here is Isaiah 49. This is the, the message that God is giving to the servant. 
I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Verse 6 of Isaiah 49. In other words, Paul and Barnabas saw them as the ones, if you will, carrying the baton of the servant. They are not the servant, but by proxy, we all are who know God, who love God, who follow God. We are his servants. We are not the servant, but we carry, as it were, the mail for the servant. That's the reason God has us on the planet, at least among the reasons. Surely there are dozens, dare we say hundreds, dare we say thousands of reasons that God intends for us to live our lives and to serve him and to honor him and to give attention to the things that really matter. But a reason, dare we say even a central reason that God intends is that we, like Paul and Barnabas in Acts 13, take the mantle of this responsibility to take the gospel to the nations. The people are in darkness. They need light. Verse 6, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. God has an old strategy for his servant, and it extends not just backwards, but it extends forward. It extends some 2,000 years in the future even to us that we would be a part of the kingdom of God and the plan of God and the work of God and that our lives would have significance because God intends for us to be salt and light, be men and women of influence in our culture, that we step up and, and represent God and speak for God and, and live our lives in such a way as to say, as for me and my house, we will follow the Lord. We will give attention to God. We will not turn to the right or to the left, but we will focus our affections upon God. He concludes that section, verse 7, thus says the Lord, the Redeemer, the Redeemer, he is our Redeemer. He purchased us. He bought us, as it were, out of exile, historically, in Isaiah's time, and he bought us out of the slavery of sin. He is our Redeemer, and he is the Holy One of Israel. We're thankful today that God has a plan that includes us, and we are not insignificant. I hope you sense that today. God intends for you to have hope. God intends for you to know his plan has weight in your life. There's an old phrase, God doesn't make junk. God's never made junk. That every life, that every circumstance, every situation, God has a plan for that. Some obviously are a lot easier than others. Some are a lot harder. Some are even downright messy. And yet in the midst of that, God intends to be a redeemer. God intends to buy us out. He, he intends to come and be our rescue. I hope you sense that in your own life today, that you know the comfort of God, that even in the midst of whatever you're in, in, in Isaiah 49, it's slavery, it's captivity, it's exile. That's, that's not my life. That's not your life. But there are people right here who, who need to re be reminded today that, that God knows your situation. He knows your pain. He knows your difficulty. He knows the things that, that are broken. 
He knows the hardship. He knows the weight of that which you're carrying. He knows it. And he's at work and he's promised a rescue. Say, well, I wish you would have rescued me yesterday or last week or last month or a year ago or five years ago. And why does he just keep leaving me here? I'm afraid the answer to that's way above my pay grade. I don't help anybody with God's timing. I'm not qualified. Neither are you. I don't know when. I don't know why, ultimately. But I know that God is doing things and that God speaks in Isaiah 49 to people in slavery and he speaks to us today. I have not forgotten you. I have sent and am sending a servant who is the redeemer. There's a second aspect of this chapter that I want you to see beginning in verse 8. And that is that God has made this hope in him available to us today. Again, we are at the mercy of the New Testament. We shall see this momentarily. Notice what he says in verse 8. Thus saith the Lord, in a time of favor I have answered you. In a day of salvation I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages, saying to the prisoners, come out, to those who are in darkness, appear. The, the, the money phrase, if you will, that I want to focus on is this issue in verse 8, in a time of favor. We all agree that when God works for us, when God does what he does, it is a time of favor. It's the time of the Lord's grace. It's the time of the Lord's mercy. When the Lord works that way, when the Lord worked historically in Isaiah's time to rescue his people out of the Babylonian captivity and to allow Cyrus, the king of Persia, to set them free and send them back home. It was a time of favor. The, the Bible declares, and we're going to see it again in Isaiah 61, Jesus, you'll remember, takes the scroll when he, he first comes to speak in the, the synagogue. They hand him the scroll, and he, he reads from Isaiah 61. In, in the day of the Lord's favor, I've been sent to proclaim release to the captives and sight to the blind, and et cetera, et cetera. Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. We're going to see that again because this is a phrase that Isaiah likes, in, the, in a time of the Lord's favor. Our problem is not knowing that the Lord has times of favor. Our problem is we wish today was the time. Why do I have to wait till tomorrow? Susan and I, recently with our grandchildren, our six-year-old, doesn't understand the concept of wait. He reminds me of me. I wish I could tell you I was a patient person. I'm, a patient about, I'm patient about 95% of the stuff in the world. But I am not patient with bad drivers. I am not. I don't say that to brag. I don't say that to be like me. I'm just telling you, brothers, I am not patient with bad drivers. If the speed limit is 70 miles an hour, do not drive 40. There are roads for people like you. And it's not the road you're on. Get off my road. 
I'm not patient. There are several other areas, but I'll leave those unnamed for the moment. But I am, for the most part, a patient person. But my grandson, he's not terribly patient. He doesn't understand waiting. He can't even wait till supper. Reminds me of me. That's how you get in the shape you're in, right? You can't wait till supper. So you just graze all day. It starts early, starts young. And that's indicative of our human condition. Our problem with God is not that we don't believe that there's a time of favor coming. Our problem with God is we want it now. We need help. We need rescue now. God has a plan for Israel in exile. It's going to last 70 years. God is going to raise up the king of Persia. The king of Persia is going to come in and overthrow the king of Babylon. Can, can we all agree that some of that's got to, it's got to require some gymnastics over there? There's some logistics that's got to happen. You know, Persia's got to become a big deal. Babylon's got to become an enemy and so forth and so on. They've got to have a, a battle or maybe several battles and all of that's got to happen. Then Cyrus has got to take a moment and try to figure out who's on first and figure out what he's got so forth. And then eventually he's going to let these folks go back and all that. So he's, but God has a plan. It's called 70 years in captivity. Nobody thinks that's a good idea if you're one of the captives. How long is God going to ask you and I to wait for whatever we believe that we don't want to wait for? We don't know. Our problem with God is the timing. But God makes it clear that he intends to come. And we must look to God and hope in God and trust in God no matter. No matter if it takes a day longer, if it takes a week longer, if it takes a year longer, the message of Scripture is wait for God. Wait for God. For crying out loud, wait for God. Let me show you this. In the New Testament, in a time of favor, verse 9 says, I answered you. In a day of salvation, I have helped you. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. The Apostle Paul, again, writing to the Corinthian church, is encouraging them to work together with God, to see their lives working in tandem with God. Again, how can we have hope? We know that God is for us, and we know that God is up to something. This is this buoys us, this raises our spirits, that gives us hope that God is not going to leave us here forever. This is not our eternal life, though it is our temporary situation. But here in chapter 6 of 2 Corinthians, notice what the apostle does. I want you to work together with God and notice the application that he makes. Verse 1, working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, and here he quotes Isaiah 49 verse 8. In a favorable time, I listened to you, and in a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. His point is, it is now urgent for us to come in alignment with God, to have not only our hope in God, but that our lives are aligned with God, that we work together with God, that we recognize that God is at work, that the time is drawing nigh. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 6, he says, today is the day. Today is the day for salvation. 
Today is the day when you weren't, once were not a part of the family of God, but now you are. He encourages us to recognize that God intends to do far more than we could ever understand. That he's at work in ways that are mysterious? Absolutely. Slow by our measure? Absolutely. And yet, they're good and they're right. And there is a sense of urgency about our lives because we know that God is at work and that the calendar is in our favor because God is at work and God is doing these things. Let me show you another illustration. Turn to Romans chapter 11. The apostle is dealing with Israel and the question of whether God has forgotten them. Maybe you today feel forgotten by God, that God is ignoring you, that God is is uh, not responding to you, that God is, is uh, somehow broken his plan or his agreement or his covenant. So he, he answers that question in, in Romans chapter 11 with a similar theme. We'll just read five verses here. I ask then, Paul explaining the way God works with his people, has God rejected his people? By no means. That's a double negative in Greek. That means no, not at all. No, nothing. No, no way. Actually means other things too, but I can't say them. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham. In other words, has God rejected his people? No, look at me. I'm an Israelite. Has God rejected the people of God? No. He hadn't rejected me. I'm an Israelite. I'm a, I'm a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Now, he uses this illustration of Elijah. Now, don't miss this because this is the point that he wants to make. Elijah complains to God, Lord, they've killed your prophets, they've demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. That may be what you're thinking. God, everybody else gets the blessings, and all I get is the leftovers, and there are not much leftovers. Everybody else gets the blessings, and I'm getting, I'm getting torched over here in the midst of my sorrow, in the midst of my difficulty, in the midst of my problems, in the midst of my challenges, whatever. He says, do you not know what the Scripture says? Lord, they, 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 but me, I'm alone. But what is God's supply, or reply to him? Verse 4, I've kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the need to bail. His argument, Elijah's argument is, I'm alone. This isn't working. And God's response is, you don't know what I know. You can't see what I see. You, you don't know what I'm doing. I'm working. And I've kept 7,000 for myself. You're not alone. You're not even remotely alone. In other words, Elijah, don't, don't respond that way. We might be tempted in our lives to, to go into doldrums, say, God has forgotten me. God doesn't care about me. God, God is at work in ways that are mysterious to me, and they're so mysterious, they've actually, he's actually left me out. And the answer is no, friend. God has left you out of anything. If you're, if you're a child of God, then he sent your ser his servant to you. 
Now we know because we, as we've said, we're 2,000 years removed from Christ. We know that this servant is in fact the son of God. Today's the day of salvation. Why? Because the servant has come. Because the servant has come in the person of the son of God. And because we can look and see the fulfillment of Isaiah 49 in our own lives, let us carry the message of Isaiah 49 to the nations and let us carry it to our own lives. Listen, in the name of being missionary, don't forget to be missionary to yourself. Don't forget to preach to yourself. Don't forget to remind yourself that God has his plan for your life too. He has a plan for the folks to the four corners of the earth, no doubt. And we're all over that. We're going to continue to be all over that. And as God gives us grace, we're going to double, maybe even triple our responsibilities around the world. Praise God. I hope that's indeed the case. But not at the expense of your own heart. In no way does God love those more than he loves these. God is at work in our lives to bring us to himself, to bring us home safely, not to a piece of dirt in Israel, but rather to a heavenly home, to a new Jerusalem. I'm thankful to God for his kindness and that God has given grace and that God continues to give grace. And we say with the apostle, today is the day of salvation. The servant has come. There is an urgency about our lives. So let us not sit back. Let us not shirk away. Let us not fall into despair. But let us get up and lift our eyes to a brighter horizon and trust God for the future and look to God for our lives and look to God for our circumstances. Hard as they may be, challenging as they may be, difficult as they may be, let us look to God for our better future. The Lord has promised his servant, and because we live on this side of the cross, his servant has come. We have been set free, and now we walk as people who do not have the shackles of sin clawing at us day after day after day. Instead, we've been set free by the law of liberty, and God is our champion. We look to him with thanksgiving and joy. I hope you know him today. I hope you're looking to him today. If you don't know him, then I tell you, friend, you are still in captivity. But God has offered even today this invitation. Come away from your sin. Come away from that which enslaves you and come to Christ. Having come to Christ, live in joy and hope that God who numbers your days also numbers your burdens, numbers your sorrows, and that God is at work to bring about your redemption. Look to, to Jesus. He is the Redeemer. He is the Holy One of Israel. Pray with me now. Father, I'm thank you, thankful that you uh, have continued to work in all our lives, that, that what you've done is what you intend to continue to do for our good, to bring about salvation, to bring about uh, comfort to bring about release to redeem us i thank you thank you for the servant who came and who's come for us to serve us and to serve you thank you father that we know him as your son jesus we're grateful for his faithfulness 
and for the mercies that he's extended to us. We say with the apostle, today is the day of salvation. Help us to proclaim this news, to love this news, to treasure this news, and to rely upon you as we go forward. We are your people looking to you today. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.